1: Hello and welcome to All Things Policy.
2: I'm Anirudh Kandesati. Today I'm joined by Prateek Wagre, a researcher with the technology policy program, and Rohini Lakshane, who's with the pachao Project. And both of these guys have done f- absolutely fascinating research on the Kashmir whitelist that's recently been published by the government, which is a list of 150 and then now 300 sites, uh, which are supposed to be accessible in Kashmir. But uh, our friends here have highlighted a number of issues pertaining to the way the whitelist functions, and have some broader points to make about access to internet being a fundamental right for Indians today. Uh, But before we begin, a quick message from our sponsors. Okay, welcome back. So let's get straight to business, Pradeek. Can you tell us a little bit about what this whitelist exactly is? Uh, Why does a whitelist exist? Does it work at all? Yeah, so it it started uh, started on
3: January 14th with the Supreme Court Uh, basically, you know, hearing the Anuradha Basin versus uh, Union Union of India case, uh, and it basically said that uh, the right to internet access is is a fundamental right. Uh, The state should find a way to restore essential services to the citizens of uh, Jammu and Kashmir. That included things like banking, etc. And which is what sort of then led to this whitelist exercise, right? And it it happened in two parts. There was first an order from the uh, civil secretary of Jammu on, on the 18th of January which had 153 websites uh, and then they updated that on the 24th uh, with 301 websites and that, that order is valid till the 31st so we could see potentially an update to this uh, whitelist on, on on 1st February
2: So Rohini, uh, analyzing this whitelist was actually was your initial idea right? Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how that came about?
0: The idea was to get a sense of The experience of an ordinary resident of Jammu and Kashmir accessing the internet under the whitelist arrangement. The situation in Jammu and Kashmir is unprecedented. About 14 million people in a democracy living in a state of lockdown for more than five months. The only internet access available to the people uh, before the Supreme Court judgment of January 10 was via internet kiosks placed in government premises and via Uh, internet connections that have been active for the past few months in specific districts. Mobile internet was completely shuttered and that is what prompted us to uh, do this exercise. Present day websites and services are not built for 2G speeds, which are the only speeds permitted by the government's Prevalent orders. Present day websites also depend on a lot of elements external to their security. That is the website security, the user security, in order to enhance the user's experience and so on. Uh, While partial internet access has theoretically been restored in response to the Supreme Court judgment, we wanted to know how usable a whitelist of about 300 entries would practically be there are about 1.7 billion websites on the internet by one count
2: so once you guys actually started working on analyzing this whitelist um how did you go about doing it how does one analyze a whitelist of internet websites how does it work like I'm, I'm i'm assuming that you essentially have to put yourself in the shoes of a kashmiri internet user right so how does how does that happen
3: Right. So there are a couple of ways that this can be done. One, I think there's a technical way of doing it, which is you you write up a script, you go to all the websites and try to analyze which requests would work and which did not work. Uh, we didn't use that approach. Uh, we used a simpler approach, which is like you said, putting ourselves in the shoes of uh, someone who might be accessing it there, and we basically set up our browsers to only allow requests to those certain websites or you know domain names that were entered in that uh, in that whitelist. Hmm. Uh, right. And we, we we tested the website as it would look without that extension in place and with the extension in place, we looked for what sort of uh, redirects it may do. Uh, just a bit of usability testing, you know, can you browse the website? Does the, is the layout uh, affected in any way? Right? Does it have a login page? Can you successfully actually log in? Right. And depending on the you know, on the type of website it is, can you achieve the main function, which is, let's say, with a banking website, can you actually log in and do personal banking? Uh, That sort of stuff. It it was, you know, essentially usability testing. We we didn't uh, do anything a
2: little more complicated than that. So you mentioned redirects, Uh, considering that the whitelist is basically a list of domains that you can access in Kashmir. um, How exactly do redirects work in that? In fact, why exactly are redirects important to the way websites work in the first place? So there are two parts to right. Redirecting is one, one component and then the
3: actual structure of web pages is, is, is another component. Uh, so redirects can be for for a whole bunch of simple reasons like uh, you know, if you, you can try to connect to the website over HTTP which is non-secure and readable, it automatically redirects you to HTTPS. Hmm. Uh, or another practice that some websites do is let's say you go to www.facebook.com hmm. not the best example because social media sites aren't allowed. Uh, but it'll, it'll probably redirect you to just Facebook.com, which they use for for their various purposes, right? Uh, that's one aspect of it. And it's it interesting you bring that up because that could potentially affect this as well, f- affect behavior as well, because if you have only a www.something version on your whitelist and it's redirecting to something else, it may not work. It most likely will not work unless that is explicitly uh, on the whitelist too. Hmm. Uh, the other aspect of this is the actual... The way the web pages today are structured, right? The way, the, the way it happened is, uh, again, as, as a user, you just see a request for, you know, we'll take a, the example of Amazon IRCTC for something like that. You just enter the website in your browser, right? What you don't typically see is that the, there's a whole bunch of requests that your browser makes, you know, under the hood to access various elements on that page. So the images, for example, typically come from a different domain, like an images something.com, right, or they could be coming from a CDN, which sometimes will be on a completely different domain, like a cloudflare.net or a cloudfront.net or an akamai.net or something like that. Hmm. Uh, There's also things like Google Analytics, etc, that go into your uh, various analytics tool that people that people use. Uh, I know, I do want to point out that we didn't consider that itself to be that you know we did consider that itself to be a point of failure because as long as the website worked, it, it was okay. a user user may not care that Google Analytics is not working, but a website operator will right. Mm. But but from our testing, since we kept it from the user's perspective, we we sort of ignored that, but there is that point that uh, it will affect the actual actual behavior of
2: uh, websites. So for example, if I were to open a website that's been whitelisted in Kashmir, uh, there is no guarantee, for example, that I would be able to see images. Um, that I would be able to um, log in. That I might. That I would be able to conduct transactions and so on and so forth. Right. Correct. Uh, exactly. Uh,
3: so, d- images. Right. And then the page of a, the structure of a page is also defined by a style sheet. Again, which follows the same principles. The images. They might come from uh, different domains, and we actually saw that a number of websites. Uh, the layout was completely broken. Right. Uh, it just looked like plain text, uh, garbled on the way down. Uh, so it, you know you you wouldn't be able to. To to really use that website very easily. The other aspect, like you said, about logging in uh, is that a lot of websites tend to redirect you to a different domain uh, to log in, right? So for example, a banking website typically takes you to a retail dot something or a banking dot something, you know, one example that we came across was SBI, which is the domain that was on the whitelist was www.onlinesbi.com. But the moment you try to log into your personal banking, it takes you to retail hmm. which is of course not on the whitelist, uh, and you're, you're not able to, to log in. Right, so you you can't really do any sort of banking. Uh, the, you also mentioned transaction, which is which is an interesting thing because for an actual transaction to happen, it goes to a payment gateway, which uses their own, which tip, typically use their own URL, their own uh, addresses. The whitelist did not contain any of them. Now, we didn't actually go to the extent of attempting a transaction, but you know, it it's a fairly good estimate that any attempted transactions will fail.
2: Interesting. Okay, so, um, Rohini, I want to ask you about the actual results of your study, right? Um, I, I remember going through the thread that you guys put out on Saturday, um, and I looked at a pre-published version of of the article that you guys have written about this. Um, And you mentioned that there's a number of duplicate entries and there seem to be some domains that aren't even Indian, for example. So can you tell us a bit about
0: that? Interesting results, duplicate entries, foreign domains. The government has repeatedly stated in its public communication and the orders for whitelisting that the purpose of the prolonged and blanket internet shutdown in Jammu and Kashmir was quote unquote terrorist activity and quote unquote anti-national activities happening via the internet. In light of this fact, it is hard for us to tell the process and criteria that the government might have used to determine the entries that made it to the whitelist and those that didn't. Uh, The whitelist includes Yahoo search for Quebec in Canada, Google Canada and Google UK, but not Google India. Uh, Now, based on the user's IP address and the settings of their devices or browsers, chances are that uh, Google Canada, et cetera, would redirect to Google India, and chances are that the whitelisting arrangement won't allow it. Um, Another example is that there are websites for private coaching centers, but not of public universities in India that are located outside Jammu and Kashmir there is the uh, wikipedia.org homepage listed as an educational website. But that URL is really that of a directory linking to Wikipedia in 300-odd languages, including Kashmiri and uh, Wikipedia's media repository, uh, a semantic database called Wikidata, among other things. Uh, So it's unclear if any of these would be made available. Uh, the, these Wikipedia domains would be made available as uh, the whitelist does not contain any qualifying information about the entries or any mention of including subdomains of whitelisted entries.
2: And Pratik, I think you actually have numbers in terms of how many websites of this whitelist are actually accessible, actually functional uh, for the Kashmiri Internet user, right?
3: Correct. So uh, the the updated whitelist right from the... Uh, from the 24th order, included 301 entries in there. Once we removed uh, duplicates, uh, number of websites that did not have any actual uh, URLs there, uh, you know, invalid URLs, we eliminated about 31. So we were left with 270 for, uh, for the actual testing. Hmm. Uh, and then what we did was we put them into three buckets. Uh, one was that it is practically not usable at all. One is that it's partially usable, which is to say that some functionality is affected, but you can pretty much do the main thing, you know, that that main purpose of of the website. And the other one was that it's practically usable in that there was minimally very little uh, visible impact uh, to the website, or it was, you know, just a simple textual website, so it wasn't really uh, affected in any way. So how many
2: of these websites are practically usable?
3: Yeah, so in terms of how many were usable, it was 58. Uh, The number that were partially usable... Were 68 that's about 126 hmm. right uh, and the remaining were all unusable
2: right that's about so clearly whoever has created this whitelist either doesn't know how the internet works or knows very well how the internet works and is putting this out as a kind of positioning or or posturing from the government side would, would you think that's a fair assessment it, it's hard to say and to be honest it, it
3: could even be both right there could be one level that an aspect of you know, maybe headline management saying that we, we've given access to so many sites but there's also a good chance that you know whoever came up with this whitelist did not consider these aspects right uh did, did not really and it, it seems unlikely that any sort of testing happened uh to make sure that uh, these things would work because otherwise we wouldn't be here where we're able to say that you know 1 150 of those websites are not
2: not working so, do we know anything at all about um, who are the people that might be making these decisions, how, these, how this is actually being implemented, uh, Rohini?
0: The orders with the accompanying whitelist were released by the Department of Home, uh, the government of uh, Jammu and Kashmir. And the orders mentioned that law enforcement departments are involved in deciding the entries that make it to the list and that the whitelist uh, will be continually updated. Uh, Now, based on our testing and analysis, uh, we have several questions about how internet service providers would actually implement some of the points in the orders uh, and some whitelisted entries that we found to be indeterminate, while also avoiding uh, liability as an intermediary. A news report that I read today on The Wire uh, states that uh, the Home Department of Jammu and Kashmir told The Wire that they are adding informally uh, to to some, some news websites to the whitelist uh, even if they haven't issued a formal order to that effect. Given that the whitelisting arrangement is an unprecedented situation and that there's also lack of transparency and publicly available information about how this exercise was carried out, all in all it is difficult to tell what is actually on the whitelist and what is not and how it will be implemented.
2: So let's try to situate this, this whitelist within a broader context, right? Now the judiciary has quite frequently said that uh, the right to internet can be considered a fundamental right in the sense that the state cannot deprive you of it and you can go to the judiciary for redressal if the state does so. Uh, Yet at the same time, the Supreme Court, while upholding this, has merely asked the government to do a review, which is, as you pointed out, which is what led to this whitelist being created in the first place. So what I want to ask you guys at, at a broader level is, what do you think the future of um, Indians' right to access the internet is going to be? Uh, do you see this becoming, uh, this whitelisting becoming more and more of a regular feature? Uh, do you see the establishment of like a, of a regular bureaucracy? And if really the issue is so-called, quote-unquote, national security, do you think that censoring the internet is really the best way to ensure national security? Right, so, you know, on, on your point about this becoming a precedent, right, I think it's
3: absolutely possible that this becomes the precedent. Uh, and I think that's one of the reasons uh, that we went to the extent of trying to research this and test this, right? Because our, our aim is to highlight very clearly that this is not a workable option, right? Uh, the internet is billions of, billions of websites. To say that 300 websites, you know, access to 300 websites, and even that is, is questionable, you know, as, as our testing found, uh, is not really uh, access to internet per se right so you know as you mentioned the, the kerala high court sort of upheld that supreme court uh that as well right uh so th- there is a chance that this is this might become become precedent but that is absolutely not the way it it, it should go uh the one positive i think is that this this may cause a rethink of uh, our frequent use of internet shutdowns hmm. uh, now it it's hard to say whether it will actually result in us Completely moving away from the internet shutdown, as you know, right? We are, I think, by far the world leader in terms of the number of internet shutdowns. Yep, I think 2019 number crossed 100, uh, right? And owing to the the CA and NRC protests, you know that we've seen also January, uh, we still continue seeing uh, seeing internet shutdowns. Another alternative potentially is, you know, I've seen this suggestion a lot is instead of a whitelist, you do a blacklist. Hmm. which is you say that these are the websites you identify and you block them, right? Hmm. Uh, again, personally, I have my issues with, with with those, but keeping that aside, right? Uh, even as a model, I, I don't think that's workable either because if you know, right? Uh, if, if you're expecting websites to be, uh, to be blacklisted, you're going to find alternatives, right? So a- anyone, let's say, who's a malicious actor is going to find an alternative. Uh, the ordinary user over time, We'll find an we'll find an alternative right but with these approaches what you what you basically do is uh, it you're just affecting the ordinary citizen disproportionately right mm-hmm. uh, people who who want to find ways to do things are going to find ways to do things
2: I, is there, I don't I don't think there are any have there been systematic studies done about the kind of economic costs that these internet shutdowns are imposing on the Indian economy? Especially at a time when growth is slowing down, uh, employment's in the dumps, consumption's decreasing. Um, it seems almost foolhardy to be consistently cutting off a large sections of the Indian population from the internet and to cut them away from um, revenue-generating opportunities. Yeah, so I, I think
3: you know with this current round of shutdowns, we're, we're still in the middle of it. So I don't think there is there is actual research that's gone into it yet, but. Uh, There was research from 2018, uh, which said that, you know, with internet shutdown, India lost up to 3 billion, potentially $3 billion. There was also research that said every day of internet shutdown results in, I think.
2: Okay, so I mean... Thank you guys so much for this illuminating research. I wish that I could say that I was as optimistic about the government revising its stance on internet shutdowns as you guys are. uh, Because to me, frankly, it seems like headline management. I saw uh, a senior Jammu and Kashmir police officer, for example, uh, commenting yesterday that, Oh, this is a gift to you for Republic Day. I mean it seems worrisome to me that the government is seeing its provision of fundamental rights as a favor that it is doing to citizens instead of its fundamental duty to them and on that very optimistic note um, thank you guys so much for joining me thank you rohini thank you prateek and thank you so much for listening to all
1: things policy if you liked our show don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the ivm network you can tune into them on the ivm podcast app ivmpodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow IVM on social media. The handle is at IVM Podcasts on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. And hey, if you'd like to dive into Takshashila's research on technology, strategy and economic affairs, check us out at our Twitter handle at Takshashila INST or our website
0: takshashila.org.in.